Hello, everybody. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 15 of the Attempt Adventure Podcast, a podcast all about travel, finding adventure every day, and seeking out adventurous ways to make life more interesting. From Dallas, Texas, I'm your host, James Barrett, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Michael DeRosiers in Bangkok, Thailand. How are you today, James? I am living. Are you settling in back home? Yeah, we can get into this at some point. I'm not super thrilled, but I know. Whatever. How are you doing? I am a lot better than I was last week, that's for sure. So, uh, folks, I came down with the uh, SARS CoV 2. I got coronavirus last the week. The Rona. Yeah, so I had been very, very careful. I don't even know where I got it. I only go to like 7 Eleven. I work from home. <laughs> it must have been there then. Maybe, yeah. I was being really smug about it too i was like because everyone else in my family's gotten it i thought i was one of those lucky people that has a natural immunity to it you know because like my wife got it and i obviously spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with her and her sister got it who lives with us my parents back home got it although i wasn't with them at the time my brothers had it. i was like the last man standing in my family that's not had it and i was kind of joking like james a week ago i was telling my wife i was like you know i kind of feel left out everyone's having this experience I was being very, I was joking about it, I was being cocky, but uh, a couple days later I had a scratchy throat and I did a little antigen test and wouldn't you know it, I was positive, so I isolated myself at a hotel for a week. For me, I have never tested positive. Yeah. My wife is certain that I did have it. I, however, am still holding strong with the I never tested positive for it, so therefore I never had it. Yeah, that's the Donald Trump method. Of beating the virus. <laughs> Remember he said we, we were testing too much. <laughs> Since my wife's grandmother lives with us, uh, just uh, to keep the family safe, I went and isolated at a hotel. It was the same hotel I was in way back in the day when I was quarantining after I was exposed when everyone was freaking out about it back like two years ago. We did a couple episodes of Ear Goggles back mm-hmm. then. It's a very okay hotel, but it was fine. Did you at least have a decent time stuck in the hotel? I mean... I ordered Taco Bell one time. <laughs> oh, how was that? How was Thai Taco Bell? Uh, it's okay. It's pretty much what you'd expect. Not not much beef. Most stuff is pork or chicken. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you expect. <laughs> you know, I, I will say that I do enjoy every once in a while a nice Taco Bell run. Yeah, I know. I haven't had it in like probably 10 years or well, probably more than that. I don't know the last time I've had Taco Bell, maybe 15 years. <laughs> but I just kind of felt like it. I was like, I'm sick, and I'm going to have Mexican food. <laughs> yeah. Quote, unquote. <laughs> oh, that's funny. You know what? Red Lobster just opened a branch here in Thailand, and I'm really excited to see what that's like. Thai Red Lobster. <laughs> as long as they still have the biscuits, then I'm sold. I know. Because that's the only reason to go to Red Lobster. Thailand has really good seafood. Yeah, I know. Why open a Red Lobster? Well, it's going to do really well, just like Sizzler does. I love Sizzler. <laughs> Sizzler doesn't exist here anymore, I don't think. I don't think it exists in the United States. <laughs> and there's a, there's a Sizzler here at like every shopping center, every mall. <laughs> the Thais love Sizzler. What can I say? <laughs> they love that salad bar, man. <laughs> I do too. Not going to lie. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. What are we talking about today, Michael? This week, we're going to be talking with Ellie Johnson, author of The Barons, 
a fantastic book that is a novel based on her. You're holding it right there. Yes, you've got it right there. Uh, it is a novel based on her adventures. It's fictional, um, but it is based on an epic journey that she herself undertook in the Canadian Barrens, past the Arctic Circle, via canoe. Uh, it's one of the most remote and dangerous places on Earth. And so she talks to me about uh, about the about the book, about the writing process, which she co-wrote with her father, and also about her real-life adventure that she took when she was 17 years old. Yeah, I mean, I was like, when I was 17, the most adventurous thing I had done was like, you know, a week at Boy Scout camp. I wasn't yeah. canoeing the Arctic, so uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> so we had a great time, and so we're, we're going to talk to her today about her book and about her real-life adventures. But first, James, I didn't do anything new or adventurous unless you count getting the virus. I'm not sure if you're going to give me a pass this week or not. Otherwise, yeah, I can definitely you get a pass. Meal. I get a pass. Okay. I get a sick getting, day. Getting the coronavirus <laughs> is, a, is a pass. Yeah. For me, I did take your advice, and I did um, go birding. I saw five birds, new okay. birds. One of them was like a some kind of uh, some kind of finch. It was like kind of purple. Mm. It's kind of pretty cool looking. I don't know. I'm not going to bore everybody with trying to guess birds, but I did go birding. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's a fun hobby. Next time I'm in America, we can go birding together. All right, guys. Well, as I said, today we are talking to Ellie Johnson. We are talking to Ellie about her book, The Barons which you've got, James, you've got the physical copy there. I've read the ebook. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen of the Attempt Adventure podcast, author, real-life adventurer, Ellie Johnson. Welcome to the Attempt Adventure podcast. I'm glad that we were finally able to uh, to make this happen. We had some tech issues this morning, but we're here now, and that's what matters. For me, it's evening. Right. So where are, where are you right now? Where are you based? I'm in Minnesota. So for me, okay. it's like I'm literally 12 hours away. So yeah. It's 8 p.m. <laughs> right. Well, cool. Well, the first thing is, why don't you just introduce yourself? And what is your relationship with adventure? Well, my name is Ellie Johnson. I'm one of the co-authors of uh, The Barons, A Story of Love and Death in the Canadian Arctic, um, which I wrote with my father, Kurt Johnson. And we wrote this fiction story about uh, two lesbian women who go traveling on a river in the Arctic, and one of them has an accident and gets severely injured. We wrote that story based in a lot of ways on my upbringing, but also a trip I took with three other women uh, in 2016 when I was 17 uh, to the far northern Canadian Arctic along the Ceylon River, uh, which is in the Arctic Circle. So I'm a, uh, I'm a high school teacher and I teach 17-year-olds. And it is just incredible to think of anyone going, I mean, I've never done anything like that. I, when I was 17, the most adventurous thing I think I had done is maybe, you know, a night away at a, at a state park or something like that. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> what an yeah, adventure. That was the yeah. summer between uh, high school and college. So it was, right. you know, I graduated high school and then I did a little trip with my parents and then I spent two months in uh, the Arctic and then I came home and I went to college. Wow. Yeah, it was just kind of something that was built up uh, through years of going to the summer camp that eventually sent me to the Arctic. It was like me, two other women around my age. And another woman who is our counselor, who is 
like 22 at the time, like not, not significantly older than us by right. any means, right. <laughs> but I had been doing like progressively more technical and challenging and long trips mm. since I was uh, about seventh, eighth grade. Well, that is so cool. So what about that inspired you to write the novel? How did you decide to write a book? Well, really, when I came back, um, my dad was the only one who was really interested in my my stories, the nitty gritty mm-hmm. about um, the route we took, uh, the plants, mm-hmm. the animals, um, the relationships that were formed. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, <laughs> he like was pushing me while I was at school. I went to school for English. He was pushing mm-hmm. me to write a story on my own based on my experience in the Arctic because he was just so fascinated by the environment. And I said, well, honestly, dude, I'm busy. Uh, You write it. Mm -hmm. And so he went on to uh, (laughs) write a little novella based on my experiences about like two women who go into the Arctic and one of them dies and the Mm -hmm. other one has to carry her body out. Mm -hmm. And that story turned into um, a full novel over hours and hours of uh, conversations, beers, pool, uh, and an attempt yeah. on his part to flesh out these characters and really recreate the environment, uh, the story and everything involved. What was it like working with your dad to write a book? Uh, challenging, but fun. And I mean, yeah. we learned a lot about each other. I think at the end of the day, and he'll say this too, it's like he was put in a position where he felt compelled to ask questions that no parent really wants to know about their kid, about um, sexuality, relationships, both good and bad about like intimacy and he was willing to ask. And so I was willing to be honest and, Mm -hmm. you know, really work through these questions of like who these people are, what makes like a full character, what makes like a lesbian character. Mm -hmm. All of those conversations kind of led to these fleshed out characters. And he had a lot of growth between us, maybe. (laughs) And and something that stands out from the book and also, I mean, from your real life adventure. So, you know, if you have the stereotypical adventure, you know, who do you picture? It's probably some, you know, 35-year-old white man, right? So the fact of a a novel about, you know, women in adventure and a real life story about women in adventure, I think is really important representation. Well, and I think even just my experience being on all female trips growing up was uh, very unique. My camp was going into some pretty uh, harsh environments. Like we were really going to the backwoods doing like tripping areas that most like uh, advanced outfitters wouldn't go to for less than 10 grand. And uh, we would get looks like, oh, you four women in two canoes are just wandering around. Like no one else is with you. And we're like, nope, (laughs) we got it. Um, You're not asking those Boy Scouts with like 30 of them and one counselor. They're all 12, (laughs) but that seems way more concerning to me. someone's dad and like 30 kids and like camping on yeah. the top of a waterfall yeah. and he was like no oh, i don't care go swimming you don't need shoes and every single boy scout is a pyromaniac oh yeah i mean <laughs> every from single girl scout is too i we were we love starting i loved working with the stoves i later became totally the manager at the camp and my favorite part was playing with the stoves and teaching the kids uh fire tricks <laughs> Well, okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about your uh, your epic canoeing adventure. So what were the most exciting or, or dangerous moments that happened along the way? I mean, the whole thing was like a light mix of, oh, this is really peaceful. Oh, my God, this is mm-hmm. entirely dangerous. And wow, I'm just, uh, this is such a remote area. There is no one near me. Yeah. 
this feels really crazy. Uh, I think some of the moments that really stand out, well, as, as dangerous, we had a few uh, crossings on these major lakes that were towards mm-hmm. the end of the lake, the end of the river. You have these lake systems that are actually like really massive lakes in an mm-hmm. area with no trees. So the wind, it's really fast, oh, gosh. large, yeah. and it becomes a challenge paddling. But on these big lakes, you start to see swells upwards of uh, like three meters. It's like, how do you bridge. navigate that in a canoe? Wow. <laughs> you try to avoid it if you can, um, but <laughs> right. we had to do a crossing at one point where we were, it was like two, three mile crossing. I could, we were a mile at least from each shore. And I was like, oh gosh, better not tip the canoe now. <laughs> right. You know, so that's certain death. So we just got to keep paddling. And really what you do is um, you get on your knees, you get into whitewater positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, loose hips, paddling, strong paddling, keep the boat forward. Don't let it go um, immediately to the side of the waves. Mm. You want the front of the boat pointed somewhat towards the waves then you can break the waves but still move forward uh, which is a little bit technical and annoying but this is true it's if you're ever caught in a wave in a boat don't let the boat go sideways to the wave on the other side of the coin how about the most beautiful place that you saw or the most memorable moment on your adventure because that area just looking at the photographs online of that part of canada it is just like so unbelievably beautiful but what was like is there any moment that just stood out as just breathtaking i don't know the whole area itself is just incredible it's kind of like a Mm -hmm. desert made of sand moss and ice and river systems so it's just like so startling like you even like hike 10 feet up on a hill Mm -hmm. and you can see for miles in any direction It's, it's really startling but in particular there was an area we were paddling and we saw that there was a marked set on the map and it was marked like mm-hmm. any of our sets we would run or even just like hop across in a, in a boat if it was just over a couple of rocks, you know, you shouldn't do that. But we we definitely boat scouted some right. sets a couple of times. Yeah. But so this one, we like pull off to scout it. It doesn't look that bad. We were talking about what the run out might look like. This one might be a fun one to, you know, run in a little bit, maybe have some Mm -hmm. lunch because it looked like a nice area. We walked about 10 feet and look, and it's a, like a 40 foot waterfall. Oh my gosh. uh, Like giant rock precipice in the middle and like a full 20 foot drop to a ledge and then another one. A giant uh, swirling hole at the bottom where it's like, if you went in that, not even a boat would come out for at least half an hour. (laughs) So we were like, okay, we're not going to run that. And as you approach it, it looks so low key. And it's like the current is pulling you towards it. And it's just marked like any, anything else on the map. So that was a little mix of like dangerous, but also it was one of the most incredible waterfalls we've ever seen. And to like see something that massive and beautiful, that was like unnamed that far up in a remote river system. It just felt like pretty insane to see something that like in anywhere else in the world, this would be like. Uh, you know, a tourist destinations, parks surrounding it. It would have restaurants and people taking pictures and climbing where they weren't supposed to and carving their names into rocks. And here it was just this hidden, dangerous, beautiful, you know, giant cliff that just opened up into like this big plateau of the river system right. that like went on for miles. You know, that's one of the things that... um about that part of the world, really. Uh, and one of the things that you mentioned also in the, in the book, just how empty it is. You know, you're just not seeing anyone. And that was yeah, one the of the, barons, uh, obviously yeah. one of the plot points, right, of the book, the desperate search. Is there anyone around that can help us? And uh, I mean, you're basically alone. Did you run into anyone else while you were up there? 
We didn't see another living soul after we were dropped off by float plane. Day about 45, I'd say, uh, when we saw a man fishing with his son. And as is custom along a, a river like that, he like stopped in to check in, say, hey, how you doing? Everyone all good? You like need anything? And we're like, no, no, we're still good. We're still on track. And he was like, okay, just FYI, we're hunting a bear that's on the other side of the river. Oh, um, no. <laughs> so maybe we we'll stay on this side. We're like, cool, thanks, man. Good to know. Uh, it wow. grizzlies, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah, that's really scary. That's actually another one of the main things that we like to harp on a lot on this podcast is that uh, U.S. well, Canada as well, even more so, is just incredibly wild, and that the animals are no joke. Did you have any no. animal encounters? Yeah, we had animal encounters. I saw a grizzly. It was not. Uh, you know, a very intense grizzly encounter. We kind of turned a bend in the river and I saw what looked like a massive boulder. And I was like, whoa, that's a big boulder, which was kind of weird because there were a lot of rocks in the Thalon. And then the boulder turned around and looked at me and it was a massive bull grizzly with like this huge head that just kind of got up and lumbered away. And we're like, oh, okay, let's cross to the other side of the river. (laughs) Don't want to deal with that, right? (laughs) Yeah, when I was working as equipment manager, we actually had a group who got... Uh, a grizzly got a little territorial with their space, took over their campsite, and they managed to get their like sat phone and first aid kit um, and ran away, but that's all they could grab. And so they were yeah. stuck out there and needed to get flown out. And it was my job to go through their equipment once they drove the bear away. And we got back, like these tents were in shreds, these poles from the tent were snapped. But I remember the most impressive thing I saw was the literal bear barrels, which are built to be smell prevention, hard to open for, frankly, mostly black bears. Because what the grizzly did to this, it looked like paper mache, just like oh my gosh. <laughs> four long claw marks that mm. were just pulled up. Like it, it looked like so plastic from a Dasani bottle, not, oh my gosh. not a bear barrel. It was crazy. That's one thing that makes me quite grateful for uh, for where I am. So I'm in Thailand, and the worst I've had is I had a monkey that got into my cooler and ate all my monkeys food are no joke though. They're, <laughs> they're not. They're mean, <laughs> like mean little creatures. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're smart. And they'll get into stuff. I've done some traveling in you know like the Caribbean and Puerto Rico and everything, and they'll go after phones and watches and stuff too. They like the shiny yeah. stuff. That's terrible. But I mean, like just being in northern Minnesota, you see so many yeah. things. There was recently, so there's been a lot of coyote sightings, even just in my neighborhood. But there is also recently a couple of lynx and even a cougar sightings in northern Minnesota. Cougars are also no joke. They're territorial and scary. But yeah. In the Arctic, really, yeah. the ones we had the most run-ins with were muskox, which are just mm. big. And they have herds with young calves they're protecting in the summer. So they just get right. really territorial and aggressive. So you just want to steer clear of them. But they'll give you plenty of warnings before they charge you. So you just try to avoid them if you can. That's the best. Yeah, but yeah. they're they're cool, and you can see them from a mile away because they travel in pretty big herds, and uh, the calves are so cute, though. Well, let's talk about logistics. So going on an adventure like this, what do you have to do to prepare for it? Because that, you know, 450 miles, that is no easy task. So what do you do to prepare and plan for a journey like this? Well, the camp starts planning, you know, permitting, insurance, mm-hmm. even like getting, you know, everyone's names on permits that they got on the trip in the middle of the year. They do all that leading up and take on a lot of that responsibility because the permits are expensive. Logistics are expensive. You know, you have to coordinate flights and find people who are willing to do them and at that time of the year when you have the tickets and permit. And the more remote the area, the more challenging that can get. And then you have the counselors themselves who are planning routes. Uh, talking to people in camp, uh, trying to plan like meals, 
they plan meals with their group a lot, but just like quantities and coordination on just like how much stuff you're going to need on a, you know, trip of that scale. But a lot of the planning is actually done, you know, when, when the kids get to camp and start working together on the, you know, final decisions on, on the trip, the planning and the night by nights that you plan, especially for canoeing, you got to plan the night by nights and you plan mm-hmm. the meals. And if you're a canoeer, we took all that food, flew with it and carried it the entire time. So we had 120 to 140 to I mean, some of them got even heavier, but these food packs were massive. We were carrying those the whole time. PVC canoes. We actually picked up our canoes when we flew into Yellowstone and had to build them on site. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly doing a leveling like changes, uh, which was wow. a bit of a nightmare, but I, I learned a lot about it. Uh, other than that, uh, we did, you know, some whitewater prep. You got to do some whitewater mm-hmm. safety courses and, you know, just some some training to get the muscles going again before you go on a trip like that. Yeah. You know, safety things. We had to do bear training with bear spray. Mm. You know, one of the things that stood out to me in the book were the descriptions, the descriptions of the scenery. So how did you manage to to sort of capture that in uh, the written form, right? So how did you manage to bring that scene into the novel? Because I assume that would have been all you since you were the one that was there, right? Your dad wasn't there with you when you- You, you know what's so funny you- enough? Uh, not at all. I, you know, really? I, okay. I am a writer in my own right, you know, went to school for English. So I did some editing and read over some sections once he presented them to me, but really mm-hmm. he was the one who just sat and had to produce in a vacuum, you know, 1500 words every day, right. craft okay. a story that was cohesive, that worked and the environment he reproduced incredibly well, just based wow. on conversations, reading like journals about the area and other people's accounts, uh, yeah. looking at pictures, just, just talking about things. And like, he would give me sections and I'd say like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Or that doesn't seem right. Or I, I never saw anything that looked like that. It's just, you know, stuff like that. But a lot of it was like him, yeah, sitting in a vacuum and wow. producing a story that spoke to, you know, not only the environment, but the characters and then kind of giving mm-hmm. it to me and saying like, hey, does this work for you? Does this feel authentic? Does this feel like, you know, <laughs> what you guys experienced when you were on trail. So I'm right. so like close with all the people who I was, I was there with and the relationships that formed and the kind of like yeah. tension and bond of like people on trail that that really factors in earlier on in the book. And survival is such a very human experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's such a, like a very human story. So that must be like an unbreakable bond. Well, you know, it's funny. I think to a certain extent, when we're talking about like wilderness survival, people think it's about yeah. these like stories, right? Like mm-hmm. what survival looks like, what did you do to survive? You look at things like, you know, the Revenant, um, mm-hmm. people think like, what did you do to survive a bear attack? But the reality is yeah. like survival is about routine, living in the outbacks about routine, you mm-hmm. know, existing in harsh environments is about routine. It's about like waking up doing a lot of the same things to protect yourself, to prepare yourself, to move from point A to point B, to eat the right meals, the right calories, and Mm -hmm. set yourself up for success in the future, and also find time to take a break and go fishing and not hate where you are. I mean, like that's at, at, at a certain point in the book, you know, survival is not like, what do you do if someone's injured? Or what do you do if you can't reach civilization? It's like, how do you get out? How do you yeah. go to sleep at night and find warmth? How do you wake up in the morning and keep going? There's a lot of things that just become rote, but there's something beautiful in that, I think. You know, a lot of us maybe aren't brave enough or don't have the time or resources or whatever to go out on a trip like this, but how can we connect to the outdoors anyway? How can we get out into nature? Start simple. 
I garden. I garden a ton. I love gardening. I have uh, a house in West St. Paul. So I do live in like the city. I live Mm -hmm. in pretty much, I live across the bridge from downtown. Minnesota is a lovely place. I'm on the river and we're really lucky to have like the access to the outdoors and the growth we do, even in an urban environment. But you can start as simple as I herb buckets. I've had really good success with herb buckets. And my mom does Northern Minnesota too, which is a super harsh environment. Uh, potting soil uh, which you don't even need but it's a great starter it's pretty cheap just find like a good source of soil if it's it's like in the woods or near you or you know you have access to a compost and herb plants can be trimmed and cut and propagated from other places bought for cheap and really easy to take care of just move and find the sun and and it's so rewarding to grow something for yourself and learn about them and how they grow and how they thrive. I love gardening. and I love planting mm. and learn about the things around in your area, not just the plants, but the animals, what's scurrying mm-hmm. around, you know, that's stuff's so fun. One thing people kind of forget is that at least in North America, we're never really that far from nature. No, know? particularly not in North America. Frankly, just sit long enough and watch like ravens. They're very interesting and they do very silly things. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like songbird species and pretty birds and everything, but there's a lot of like really yeah. cool predatory bird species that are in like the farmlands area. Oh, yeah. You don't have to go too far to take a look at. But I mean, yeah. you know, every country in the world has something like interesting going on in the backyard. Even New York, oh, yeah. the squirrels, they have interesting things they're doing. Yeah. I, I mean, like, this is something I also want to tell other people, but I'm totally spoiled in Minnesota land of 10,000 lakes. Get near mm. water. Uh, mm-hmm. Water is like really beautiful. And um, just being on like natural water sources and like being around creatures that live in the water, I think it's very cathartic and beautiful. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of like just muskrats and beavers and everything that you can even see just like in the cities here, which is really cool. But uh, I like boating. I still love boating, paddling, canoeing. Mm. So I just think like getting a chance to be on a boat and to be close to water is like very good for the soul and a good way to experience adventure, you know? So my family has had a cabin in Northern Minnesota since way before I was born. Mm -hmm. And that's like a portage out of the Boundary Waters, which is one of the, you know, biggest canoe areas in the world um, and shares a border with Canada. And once you cross into Canada, you have the Quetico Wilderness, which is even bigger. So I got to experience canoeing in the Boundary Waters a lot growing up. And without even doing that, I can... I can go and lake hop without even having to buy a permit because uh, wow. we have, you know, old aluminum canoes and new Kevlar canoes and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, so I love just being able to canoe and it, it has a lot of freedom about it too. You can pull up anywhere. You can be everywhere. It's not a motorboat. It's quiet. You don't disturb right. things. So like, you know, beavers notice you at the last second and then they get mad at you and they try to at <laughs> you. And it's, there's something really satisfying about that in particular. One of the main themes that runs throughout the book is the idea of being a storyist. So what does that mean? And would you consider yourself to be a storyist? Well, I mean, I, I really do love that concept because it's uh, so poignant to uh, adventuring, you know, camping and being in the outdoors and like kind of yeah. how we share ourselves with other people we take trips with. You kind of just like stuck in a vacuum and you're either having conversations or debates or you're sharing stories about your life. And I think that's where it started with like you know how do you you know share yourself with another person especially on trail and you kind of are left with this you know idea of these vignettes that all strung together 
uh, create our lives and how we respond to things and how we perceive the world and how we move forward and make decisions. But I think that also, you know, I, I love telling stories, but my dad's better at it. And growing up, uh, that was a way that he shared himself uh, with me and how we got to know each other is that he had always gone on these adventures when he was a kid. He was like a nightclub manager mm. in Vegas. He like rode wow. uh, the rails and like rode like freights to different places in the U.S. And, and he like, you know, cut and planted trees in northern Minnesota and like other places in the American like Southwest and, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's ripe with stories. Um, you know, he would always kind of like exaggerate them, repeat them over and over. So they took on a life of their own. And when we were sitting around right. the campfire or taking a sauna or taking a canoe together, I'd say things like, Oh, tell me the story about, uh, the angel in Nebraska, or, you know, well, tell me the story about uh, the bouncer in Vegas who could knock a guy out in one wow. punch. Yeah. You know, at a certain point, I realized that I was in high school and I was still like having friends over, you know, to, to dinner and saying like, oh, dad, you have to tell him this story. And it was like kind of how I learned how to share my dad with others, too. And, you know, that became a big part of our relationship. And I think how he perceives people, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You know, of course, because in the book, the characters, right, Lee and, and Jake, they don't have or well, they have a, a very complicated relationship, right? And that seems very different from the relationship between you and your own father. Well, see, this has come up like a couple of times, which I find so funny. And like the father-daughter yeah. collaboration book, right? You have like one of the most right. like, weird and toxic like relationships <laughs> between a single right. father and an only daughter. But, you know, in actuality, that's like based on a man my dad knew in Nebraska who was like friends with my grandma. And he was okay. like... Um, a weird eco-anarchist who like made a bunker along the Platte River in Nebraska. And then when my dad was invited over to dinner, he had like these sculling oars um, from Harvard hanging over the mantle, you know, for rowing. And he was like, what kind of person is this? And like, what happens in your life that you like all of a sudden go right. from like being a yuppie? Because you had to have been a yuppie at some point in your life to row from Harvard. Harvard. Sure. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> uh, to being like an eco-anarchist. But I mean, I think in a lot of ways that story and like almost like Lee's upbringing was kind of more based on like him and his upbringing and somewhat his yeah. like mom, his family's from Nebraska and are all farm people. And but we're also, you know, like Minnesotans and outdoorsy people. It's it's all kind of a mishmash, you know, nothing's ever too specific. So if you could give some advice to new adventurers, what would you like to tell them? Start simple. Yeah, really like don't second guess how long you want to go out. An adventure can be as easy as like getting in your car and like sleeping in your car one night in an area that mm. you want to have a fire in or, you yeah. know, like diving in head first and getting a guide online and going yeah. somewhere and really just doing it to it and learning a new skill. Um, but I think that you should not just adventure to try to overcome something or like do it to the most extreme of the extreme but like, don't go on an adventure if you can't find space to also just enjoy it and be at peace and like appreciate what's around you. That's why I liked kind of doing whitewater canoeing versus whitewater rafting, because I feel like whitewater mm. rafting puts so much pressure on this like adrenaline aspect of whitewater. Yeah, like like whitewater. me focused on every moment, right? Yeah, like whitewater canoeing is more about like stopping, scouting it, thinking about your best route, using like yeah. the skills you've learned to overcome it, to keep going on your journey in this incredible area. So yeah, like start simple, 
don't push yourself too far. Bring some books, pick one meal that you want to do for at least a couple hours and just really get into like, get do a good camping meal. I don't know. I think, yeah, start simple. Do you have a favorite camping meal? When I'm private camping, I think going and buying like a cheap cut of steak, like frozen, and then you let it thaw in your pack over day and it's your like first night on trail dinner. But you can Mm -hmm. only do that if you make sure you do a long first day. It has to be a reward. Like a short first day and then reward yourself with a steak. Like, come on, you gotta. You You haven't earned it yet. Cover (laughs) some miles if you're going to get a steak. Um, Other than that, I mean, like pasta's always Mm -hmm. good. We always did uh, quinoa with pesto on trail. Do like a packet of pesto. Craft Parmesan keeps really well, just mm-hmm. the kind of dehydrated kind, and it melts really well. So we use like that, like a packet of like Alfredo mix, some mm-hmm. oil, pesto, and Parmesan, and it was just like so satisfying. <laughs> Cheesy. <laughs> I think that was our favorite. So where can listeners find a copy of your book? Uh, pretty much wherever you buy books, uh, certainly like online. Uh, I always like repping uh, indiebooks.org, um, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure they ship internationally. Uh, it is The Barons, A Story of Love and Death in the Canadian Arctic, written by Kurt Johnson and Ellie Johnson. You can uh, reach my dad at his website, kurtjohnsonbooks.com. I'm on Instagram at elliej418, and um, I'm really excited for you guys to read about this incredible area of the world that so few people even get to witness. Yeah. So we will put links to all of that in our show notes as well. I really appreciate being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and yeah, get out and travel, get in a boat and see the water, get in a car and see the roads, Uh, talk to people, ask them about what it's like to live where they are. Even a town away can be insanely different and you can learn something really interesting. Totally. Well, Ellie Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And we are back, James. Of course, we're going to be putting links to all of that in the show notes on attemptadventure.com. So, James, I'll ask you this. When you were 17, what was the most adventurous thing you had done? (laughs) You know... Probably similar to you. Uh, I, I spent some time at Boy Scout camps. It's like that time that you um, and I went camping on the beach. <laughs> we did go camping on the beach. I was probably around 17. Yeah. We went camping in the woods at the state park. We tried to sleep in the back of a truck. Yeah. Because we, well, we were just too lazy to set up the tent. We had a tent, to be fair. We we did have a tent, but it was also like 110 degrees at night, <laughs> and we were just like, "Why are we doing this?" And yeah. our friend was supposed to come and didn't. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I was not doing very adventurous things when I was that age. You know, that's it's interesting because my my dad did several long canoe trips up to the Boundary Waters, and he was like. 15, 16, 17 when he did those. And so I'm just like, man, when I was 17, I didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to just... be fair, Elliot 17 has done more than I've done now. I mean. Oh, yeah, 100%. She's <laughs> way more. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done anything close. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's inspiration right there. Of course, in the book, things go wrong. In real life, you uh, hope that doesn't happen. But what I did yes. like so much about the book is just the way that it 
yeah, it did. It made you feel, you know, that that isolation of being in this desolate, you know, uh, beautiful, rugged landscape. And I've always found that type of like far northern Canada, like Iceland, Norway, that kind of like cold, rough landscape, really beautiful, like, like mm-hmm. the Skyrim landscape, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's very true. Thank you again, Ellie, so much for coming on the show. It was a blast. Well, James, with that being said, it is time now for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News. This week, sir, it's your turn. So what have you got to share with us today? This one comes from one of my favorite websites, OutsideOnline.com. This one is not funny. More of a public service announcement, I guess. Okay. Um, Yellowstone employees found a human foot floating in a hot spring. So in most places, hot springs are nice and you go sit in them and they're very pleasant, pleasant experiences. Not so in Yellowstone National Park. <laughs> no. And people try all the time. People try all the time. The hot springs in Yellowstone, they're very pretty. They're beautiful. The water is crystal clear and it's steamy and it looks re- like it'd be really nice to just go, you know, sit on the edge and take a dip. This hot spring, the Abyss Pool, um, has temperatures ranging from 140 degrees Fahrenheit to 198 degrees Fahrenheit. Gosh. I mean, that's deadly. That's not something that you can survive a dip in. So in 2016, a man named Colin Nathaniel Scott died in one of the hot springs after leaving a boardwalk. Rescuers were unable to retrieve his body. And the water is not only scalding hot, in some cases very close to boiling, the water is also very, very alkaline. So basically, if you were the unlucky person to fall into one or purposely jump into one like some people do, you are going to die. If you do die and they can't get your body out, the water will dissolve your body. Yeah, it's scary. So don't don't get in there. There's a reason there are boardwalks with signs everywhere that says don't. I think that people think the signs are there like, oh, yeah, they don't want tourists swimming in here, but like no one's going to care if I get in. It's not about that. It's It's for your safety. Yeah, so you don't die. Rules are there for a reason, you know? The rules, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to nature, especially when it comes to, I don't know, yeah, the natural world. Things about animals or geography, right? Mm-hmm. Like, don't mess with that. The world, you know, planet Earth is a lot stronger than we are. <laughs> anyway, so that's my news. Don't get in the hot springs. No, that's really good. I, I would say just follow the signs. If you're at a national park, the signs there are... I mean, a lot of times, yeah, they are there to protect the environment, but that's also really important. And I think it's worth noting that park rangers are federal officers. Like, they have their own, like, they can arrest you as well. Yeah. On Hulu, there is a show called Wild Crime. It is about crimes that occur on public land. And I bet you don't know that um, the National Park Service has a, like, dedicated federal detective branch of their own. <laughs> yeah, and what I've heard is they're really good. Like, there's two there's two d- government departments that you don't want to mess with, and hilariously, it's the Parks Department and the Post Office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's just, like, people, Every you'll see these people that, like, spray paint the rocks in different yeah. parks and stuff like that. They yeah. always find them. And then they feed you to the grizzlies. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, just just follow the signs, everybody. 
that's all I got. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show today, please don't forget to subscribe and consider us giving a review on whatever podcast app you prefer. If you liked what we do here, a five-star review really helps out. You can find more Attempt Adventure content on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We are all Attempt Adventure. Um, the best place to go, however, is just our website, attemptadventure.com. There there are show notes, links to the things we talk about. Just good stuff on there. Check it out. The best way to get in contact with us is through there. Click the little Contact Us button, and that's all you got to do. Thanks so much again for listening, and until next time, keep adventuring.